Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and I'm the host of the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question to provide you with tools and content to help you find and define your own answer to this question. While I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience. On the 19th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm joined by Dan Lawrence. Dan is head of consultancy at Dallington Associates, a Jungian psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and a social dreaming consultant. In this episode, Dan takes us on a journey from questioning where thoughts come from as a child to his investigation and work around dreams and social dreaming, outlining what we can learn from and how we can connect through sharing and engaging more fully with our dreams. While he also shares what he has learned from his vast experiences with Zen practice, silent meditation retreats, mat surfing, infant observation, and his recent ICU experience in Malaysia. Dan's life path to date includes being a derivative strider for 11 years, studying to be a priest, becoming a Jungian psychotherapist, while also offering psychedelic integration therapy, all while practicing Zen for 25 years. His unique life experiences and perspectives make Dan one of the most insightful people I know and someone who I always learn a lot from when I speak with. And so through listening to this episode, I'm sure you're going to both widen and deepen the scope of your investigation and indeed your awareness in contemplating what contributes to a good life for you. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share and subscribe as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. And so without further ado, the 19th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Dan, thank you very, very much for joining me on the What is a Good Life podcast today. Uh, having spoken to you once before, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. Dan, as, the, as I tend to have the habit, uh, I open up with the question of, is there a question that you're trying to answer as you move through life? I think, I think it's probably the same question that in a different way I was asking myself when I was something like three or four years old, sat on the edge of my bed struck by the fact that there was this inner life in my mind, these and wondering where thoughts came from. And I think that's been a thread through my life, really, trying to, I think I've lost the fantasy of answering it definitively, but I've realized the, the worth of kind of following that question, both in terms of in, in, in an interior sense, in, in my own kind of inner life and my own mind and dreams, but also in the space between people as well and in nature i should extend it to too. this question of where do thoughts come <laughs> from I, I it's it's something i ask myself sometimes uh i didn't come to it as early as three or four years of age but it's it's something i ask myself in meditation sometimes now if i've got a particularly busy mind and i i love this idea that you said you've kind of let go of the desire to find the answer almost or to know definitively where they've come from because it always shuts my mind down when i ask i reflect that question back to it where did that last thought come from i i think it's the wrong part of our mind that asks that question i think it's it's the trap itself you know so you know we talked before about in McGilchrist's work in that sense and i think in in his language it's the left hemisphere it's this kind of part of our our brain mind hyphenated, that seeks to kind of develop a, a body of knowledge about the world rather than relax into a sense of knowing the world and encountering the world and receiving the world, in a sense. So it's a, it's a bit of a moot, a moot kind of question from that perspective. So what is that then, do you think? Like, is that just coming more into, like... Um a feeling of the world, an experience of the world? How would you kind of categorize that shift from 
maybe almost intellectually categorizing or cataloging the world? I think, I mean, I'll just ask, answer personally at my own experience, really. I think it, yeah, I think it's really why I've been really interested in dreams over the years, because dreams, I think, are a type of thinking, what we might call proto thinking or something, before thoughts develop into, you know, the, the kind of chunks of data or information in that sense. So much more alive. You can't exhaust a dream. When, when you have a dream and you become curious about it, uh, I, I'm a Jungian therapist and, and within that kind of field, it's not about analysing the dream so much and gaining, again, knowledge about it or an understanding. The beauty of working with dreams is that something comes alive, something um, that is inexhaustible, kind of keeps opening out to new, new knowings and new versions of, of reality, maybe gives birth to new thoughts in that sense. Um, I think I, you know, personally I relate it to, I love surfing and in particular I love uh, mat surfing, which is uh, surfing a, a thin bag of air really that you lay prone on. And there's, there's something of a Zen practice about that for me. I've also practiced Zen for many years and there's something about losing that, that desire to, to know or to kind of capture the world in a, in a snapshot, almost like a Polaroid photograph of, of knowledge or something that is much more like being in a state of flow and responding to the world offering herself to you in a sense. So, you know, when you, when you surf, if you surf well, you don't master anything. You don't master a wave or, I mean, you might look good on a, on a shortboard kind of carving shapes and, uh, I'd be lying if I said, I wish I couldn't do that. Uh, but there's, there's something, uh, there's something about kind of responding moment to moment to the shift of energy in a way that to me is far more about being alive. And, you know, in the, in the work that I do, having, you know, spent thousands of hours now with people, I realize that most people want to feel alive and to feel alive. You have to be connected to this river of life in you that maybe ends up at the end point of thought or an experience, but before that there's something less wordy and uh, more embodied in that sense, but also more kind of inside outside. You have to be in touch with what's going on around you, both outside of your own nature of mind, but, and, but also in, in nature itself. You know, I, I belong into kind of Japanese approaches. There's, there's a Japanese psychoanalyst, uh, the late Shoma Morita, and one of the things I loved about his theory, he had this kind of ecological theory of psychotherapy. So you'd go and live in nature for a few weeks and go through four stages. And it kind of relied on a theory of consciousness that was what you might call peripheral consciousness, that through going through that Marita process, you remember or remind yourself that mind is found in nature and, you know, what we claim to be our thoughts are part, are part of a much bigger kind of matrix of, of mind and thinking, in that sense. Man, I'd, uh, I'd rather this wasn't a podcast right now and I could just kind of sit on that and, tr- and take a lot of that in uh, without having to interrupt it or, or to, to probe around that with a question. That There's a really... I, I love this sense, and you, you touched on it before, like the way you define dreams isn't necessarily what I have when I go to sleep. 
but it's also even just this space you you said it there really beautifully like this space before thought or this like thought is almost the end point of an, an experience which we which we capture but it doesn't it it doesn't do justice to everything that just went before that and like the final thought is almost not the culmination or the high point but it but it's an expression of it but it, it does a disservice almost to everything that's gone uh, gone before it when you when you think of this work in terms of social dreaming was a concept that you brought to me when we chatted yeah. last time and um, just briefly i guess how would you how would you even define that um and and maybe then just talk about the like your maybe some of your experience in terms of how that builds a picture of i don't want to say reality or something but it it builds more layers to to our to what we see perhaps so i came across social dreaming about 20 years ago in london and i think for me it really gave a language around this this intuition that dreams weren't just my personal property that there was this kind of field like nature to dreams in that sense that connected uh, the spaces in between us in, in that sense. So in social dreaming, the dreams, what you're really curious about are the dreams themselves, not the dream. Um, and there's a, a kind of whole history to social dreaming. There's, it relies heavily on the psychoanalytic world in that sense. I mean, Gordon Lawrence, who founded or maybe remembered social dreaming because of course, there's a long history of socially oriented dreaming in indigenous cultures, well beyond our kind of European, you know, uh, refining of it or, or rehashing of it in that sense. But Gore Lawrence uh, said that there are dreams in search of a dreamer, and really he was echoing the psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion, who said that there were thoughts in search of a thinker. So every every thought that is ever thought exists, and and you know we. As human beings and psychological kind of human beings, it's our task really, both in, in childhood and as adults, to develop the apparatus to be able to to think these thoughts and almost kind of give birth to them. So social dreaming from that perspective is a way of doing so in a in a social environment. So it's in two parts. So the first part of a social dreaming session is called a social dreaming matrix. And the word matrix was deliberate in that it comes from the Latin root for uterus. So it points you towards this kind of generative process. And as a social dreaming host, all I'm doing, uh, you know, the, the perfect social dreaming matrix as a host is that I say very, very little. I kind of do a, a short intro as to why we're there, maybe a little bit about dreams and dreaming and a lot about the the point of the matter is to kind of resist the need to interpret the dream or to trap it kind of in an individual meaning in that sense. Then what we're going to do in this matrix is we'll start with a nighttime dream and then we'll gradually kind of just give voice to everybody's dreams in the groups as they arise, as they connect to the themes of other people's dreams and people's associations, what it reminds them of in terms of kind of memories or an image in their mind or an amplification, something from culture, a film, a character. And given I'm, you know, I'm a Jungian therapist and I've been practicing Zen for many years and mat surfing, I say they're the, the, the kind of three triad of my pra practice really, um, is I'm really interested in the dreaming, dreaming 
moment to moment kind of reverie soaked uh, part of our existence too. So if we're in a social dreaming matrix and there's something happening outside the window, it's a dream. It's part of, of what we bring in in that sense. So I guess I'm influenced by Arnie Mindell's process work in that sense, in that he kind of widens this Jungian nature of dreams out from kind of nighttime dreams into this moment-to-moment dreaming reality, really, essence level to things. And how would you describe to someone then the sense of dreaming while we're awake? Like you, you kind of... Oh, wow. I remember we talked to you, you made the distinction between, I, I, I went to make the, the distinction between uh, being awake and being asleep and, and that's almost around for dreaming. But you brought it out, like, you know, this, I think by categorizing dreaming as what happens just before that space, before what happens before thoughts, um, even the notion of, uh, you know, what the the dreams are waiting for a dreamer uh, for them to come through almost or, or this kind of sense. Like, how, how do you kind of differentiate between? Well, there's, there's two kind of metaphors that spring to mind. One is, and I think it's a Gordon Lawrence quote. He, he said, be like a casual tourist in the dreaming space. So, you know, we've all kind of gone for that Europe weekend break or something. And then you, you arrive, it's probably warmer than Britain and then you you get there you drop your bags in a a nice little hotel and if you're anything like me you quickly find a kind of coffee shop outside that you can just order a nice coffee sit and then you just observe the flow of things around you you're in this new space you know you're you're kind of wonderfully displaced you're not in your usual environment and you're just kind of curious and you're just noticing what's going on around you in a sense so there's that kind of almost, you know, deliberate daydream type existence, which means you're, you're kind of casting off your jacket of work and, you know, being dad or, or whatever, you know, your, your usual social roles are. And you're just having a coffee and noticing the movement of things around you. So it's a bit like that. And then the other thing I'm reminded of is I hosted a, a social dreaming matrix last year for a group of people that had started meeting online during covid and they're a wonderful uh, kind of group of people called New Artisans. And um, they were uh, just doing a couple of kind of trial social dreaming sessions for them. We had a really kind of lively kind of matrix with lots of dreams and associations kind of building up and lots of quite clear themes in that. In the second part of the work, we could then discuss and start thinking and linking to the group and what was happening around them and stuff. And afterwards, one of the... Uh, the women that attended the social dreaming session contacted me and she said it was like being two streets back in her mind in a sense and she likened it to a visit to London she was actually in the process of moving out to Sydney I think and she visited London for a short break and she'd meant to go to some event somewhere and got lost in somewhere in the city in London and arrived two streets back from where she should have been but stumbled into this uh, kind of funfair environment with lots of children and balloons and lots of kind of things, a feast for the senses, really. And she made the decision in, in real life to say, oh, I'll just stay here for an hour and just enjoy this and then go to where she was supposed to be. And so she likened it to that in a sense, just kind of sauntering along and arriving somewhere that's still connected to where you're supposed to be, but there's something going on and you're, you're curious in that sense. And, so then there's this beautiful sense really of 
like this continuous paying attention or this subtlety it, it seems like a a relaxed focus yeah yeah like you're not deliberately seeking information you're just but you're i don't know there seems like a really beautiful floaty presence to it and this this is for me this is a recovery of something that is really important to us actually and serves one of the kind of foundational bricks of our mind of our kind of mind's architecture because uh, mark you're never going to speak to me for an, for more than an hour and me not mention infant observation so it kind of reminds me of infant observation which i is a core part of psychoanalytic training so before you learn any theory you observe a baby from birth for two years so you, you have to find a family uh, who's prepared to let you into their home and from the, the kind of baby's birth onwards, you, you visit the family once a week. And you, wherever the baby is, you, you follow baby and you sit and you observe. You observe with your eyes, but you also observe with your whole body in that sense. And what you're really observing is this formation of a mind and how this mind interacts with mother, who's often most important, and father and, and maybe siblings. And, and I, I enjoyed that so much. I did it twice. I did four hours, uh, four years of, of infant observation because I just, and I still to this day find it to be probably the most significant part of any training that I've ever done. Um, so I did one from a Jungian perspective and one from a Freudian perspective. And what, what you discover certainly in the first six months, bear in mind baby's brain kind of roughly triples in weight in the first 13 months or so of life and a lot of that is the thinking apparatus in a, in a brain sense and what you discover certainly in that first six months is you're trying to tune in to this baby and baby is kind of drinking in the world and once baby's drunk in enough because they haven't yet kind of developed the capacity to think about their experience um, baby just tends to kind of flop and kind of go into this kind of glazed eyes, this state of reverie, which is almost like a dreaming of what just happened. And that, for me, is the building blocks of, of thinking in that sense. And, and as the observer, when you're trying to capture this in your notes later, because you don't take any while you're there, you're just there to observe, you end up kind of sketching images or writing some kind of jazz-like poetry because... Of course, baby's not thinking. So what you're tuning into is this image-rich, kind of saturated with feeling experience of the world, like dreaming in that sense. Because dreams, you know, everybody at some point, many people say, I can't remember my dreams. But everybody has a, a dream usually. Or, you know, if I, if I work with someone in, in psychotherapy, uh, I don't have to ask if anyone has any dreams by now because they, they know I'm going to ask them anyway. So they uh, pay attention right. to them and often kind of bring them to sessions and stuff. And, and there, is a, there is a difference between those dreams that carry a kind of numinosity about them, a kind of energetic kind of charge about them, the, the, some kind of feeling toned kind of aspect to them. That reminds me a lot of, of infant observation in that sense. So... Uh, right from the start of this career shift that I did, uh, you know, back in the day, was that experience of infant observation. I'm so grateful for that because it really affirmed that there was something, at least something in the field of psychotherapy that really resonated deeply with, again, that three or four-year-old sat on the edge of his bed, kind of just trying to work these things out, kind of 
enter into it. Well, there's a there there is something magical. I, I don't know, even just in a in a coffee shop, catching a glance with a, a child, um, yeah. like a, a baby, not even a child. I, I think some of the revering of go back to a childlike state. I, I don't quite get that when I see them at a certain <laughs> age, but but just a a baby that's just literally taken the world in with its glance. There is something truly magical about it. Like, absolutely. And, and how often? How this, often do we do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, too often for myself, I think, in the last <laughs> few years, instead of maybe focusing on work. But, um, but I, I hear you because there, there is something, there is something magical. Like, there is something really magical when you when one can fall. Like, if I fall into that space, if I'm sat, even you know, even busy places like sat on the side, like a, a coffee shop across the road from me, on the on a on beside a street. There is like there is a space of observation that we can connect with that like I'm not saying it's an escape from our life yeah. um but it definitely offers me a place of like wow there's like there's something infinite to this or there's something there's something way beyond this experience and I I love um I love what you're trying like what it seems the idea with social dreaming or even just the idea of bringing a group of people together and not not having like preconceived notions, like not in a personal attachment between the person and the dream. The the dream is what they've brought. It's not to say, how does that reflect to your life? I'm I'm assuming is that is that correct? Uh, or yeah, it's, it's correct? absolutely. I mean, you know, there's different theories around this. So, in a more uh, organizational kind of setting, uh, or a kind of systems psychodynamic setting there'll be more focus on what we call a social unconscious in that sense, or so the, the kind of social reality of the group. So sometimes I'm, I'm asked to facilitate social dreaming for a project or a, or a group or an organization that is working on something. And usually, you know, you're up, you're pulled in either when there's a particularly curious person at the head of that project or when things are going wrong. And so there's this sense that by allowing yourself to settle back down into the, the proto thinking rather than the, the kind of products I'm thinking at the top, um, that there's you, you're going to kind of discover something new in that sense. What what Christopher Bolas, which is one of my favourite phrases, called the unthought known, and so it's it's kind of known, but it's it's taboo. It can't quite yet reach thought yet, or it's not quite made it there. So you fall into dreaming to allow uh, this thought to, to kind of reach reality, and then it can be thought about, shared in the group. So. The second part of social dreaming is what we call a dialogue, you know, a dream dialogue, in which I, I might draw attention to some of the themes that emerged in the dreams in the matrix session. And then we'll kind of apply that to the social reality of the group, project, and what the primary task is in that sense. Now, many companies kind of like that idea. And, and believe me, there can be some quite fabulous uh, synchronistic kind of in, innovations that can come from that. I think over time, what I've loved more about social dreaming is this sense of communitas that grows in the group because you may have two people who have worked together for many years, you know, around a table or across the room from each other, and they know something about each other. But they're introduced to this kind of fluid knowing about, and they, there might be a commonality about their dream that 
demonstrates that they're more connected than they quite realize. And so the dynamics in the team begin to change. So you have this kind of implicit change that goes on in the organization, which I just, I just love, you know, if, if I do a series of social dreams for organizations and there's the, the kind of the thoughts that emerge that might shift something in, in the project or produce a new trajectory. But what I really love is when the CEO or the, the project lead comes to me and says, you know what, our meetings are different all of a sudden. Something shifted in the way that we hold our usual meetings and the way that we relate to each other. And as a, a psychotherapist, that's a, a lovely thing to hear. From just listening to that, I'm assuming though that it's, there's some, in, in just my experience in life, it feels to me that as much onus as we put on words and the importance of words, that there's a there's something at our disposal within our being, within our energy, within something that allows us connect on much deeper levels. And this dreaming, like the like this, even though we're putting the dreams into words, it's like using a different language first. You know the way some sometimes. Um, when people speak different languages, they are different people in different languages. I, I, to me, it just sounds like there's yeah. something in within this dream thing that by getting them to speak a different language, like let's say if someone might to think German is quite harsh or English, you know, or French could be more beautiful or something, whatever it may be, but there's people show up as different ways in different languages. And I just wonder, it almost gives me that feel that people are just communicating on a, on a completely different level in this. In this Absolutely. And, and because the dream the focus on the dreamer, not the dreamer, it kind of frees people up from the risk of it yeah. being personally interpreted. So, you know, you might find, I've hosted social dreaming a lot in conference settings. So you've got a bunch of people kind of thrown together almost with a common interest in, in whatever the conference is about. And yet 20 minutes into a social dreaming session, they're sharing, you know, a, a childhood dream that they've never told anyone about or something that actually was a really anxious dream or something. And then someone's association to that might be that their mother died last week or something. So, so there's this real intimacy that kind of develops and a, and a subtle revealing because, because you're freed from the constraints of thought. I mean, in a Zen sense, uh, one of my favorite quotes in Zen was Uchiyama Roshi, who, who wrote a, 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 to my mind, a, a little known book in the West, quite hard to get the translation from Japanese and it translates roughly as uh, opening the hand of thought and so his his whole kind of approach was look thinking happens thinking we, we're human we have this thinking apparatus what we tend to do is kind of grab our thoughts as they and concretize them and um, make something of them and Zen and social dreaming and uh, dreams in a Jungian kind of psychotherapy setting and conversations like this are kind of opening that hand of thought and allowing, going back to the thinking, thinking, dreaming, thinking, dreaming, and just kind of allowing your, your hand to stay open. So when, you know, when I've had experiences on Zen retreats where you might sit facing a wall for, you know, seven days in silence and you get up after 12 hours sitting with, creaky legs and a sore back and uh, wondering why you're there. <laughs> why am I wasting my life doing this? All the, the thinking, thinking that goes on in those kind of settings, or for me at least. Um, after seven days of doing that and in complete silence, and you, you may have glanced at the 
person next to you a couple of times during the course of the seven days. At the end of that, when you stand up and you look at each other and you're allowed to talk, you know, the retreat's over, you don't say very much because you, you, you know something about that person next oh. to you. you. You have this deep knowing about something on a, a more subtle level about them that almost to have a conversation now would, would, would feel quite frivolous in a sense. This oh, I just wanted to sit with that for a second. That's uh, oh god! So you're in this person's presence. You're you're both potentially in some in a bit of a bit of a wavy dream like state, almost even in, in, for twelve hours. Maybe like is there when you're saying you're facing a wall, or your is it eyes closed all the time? Or are you uh, most sense settings I've been in, you you have your eyes kind of subtly open, but at a 45 degree angle to the floor almost right so even when you were talking about earlier the sense of a peripheral viewing you know like i'm not saying that you're not concentrated or whatever but you're just you're aware of somebody other some of their beings existence it's almost like you're you're drinking it in or or absorbing it in some way without putting words to it Um, and i just man I, i love this sense and you you absolutely fundamentally feel like you know them on some level then and, and in, in social dreaming, actually, I think when I first started to host it, I had some kind of internal pressure that I had to facilitate the session in some way and almost encourage people to share their dreams. What I've discovered over time, and, and I've probably hosted about uh, 400 social dreaming sessions now, is that often the people that, that say very little or nothing in the, the matrix session, the sharing of dreams and the associations and the amplifications have a lot to say in the dialogue session because they really entered into a state of reverie and almost allowed this kind of dreaming in the room to wash over them and it activated some kind of knowing in them. And they just, it, it was a revelation to them. They just wanted to rest in it in that sense. So it's why it's always useful to have a group of, you know, 12 plus in, in social dreaming because it enables some people just to lead into the into the space in a sense in terms of just you've mentioned the idea of um, observing an infant <clears throat> and and observing that like that energy like whatever space they're in at that time but then I, when you were talking about that and then the, the role of not getting too involved as a facilitator or not speaking too much or being too directive as a facilitator, it almost made me think of that a little bit. But then I also had this kind of thought of, um, of a, like a, a shaman or something like, like you're not like you're almost, I don't know, you're just, you're holding the space or something for this thing to happen. Like how, how would you describe your, your state of mind while, or your state of experience even while, while uh, being involved in this? I think, I think it's an era of extreme kind of mobility. And funny enough, I was talking to someone earlier uh, about Winnicott and Winnicott's notion of play in that sense. And one of the things I was saying to them is that uh, Winnicott is a psychoanalyst who focused a lot on, this kind of space between mother and baby and, and uh, the importance of play in that sense. And one of the things that always strikes me about Winnicott is this sense that the child doesn't worry so much as whether their play is believed. 
um, it's more that it's facilitated and entered into. And, and so there's something of, as long as the baby sense or, or the, the child or the infant senses that mother or whoever is around the child playing with them ha- is spacious and has this sense of mobility about the play that they can kind of, you know, shift, shapeshift almost. Um, that's yeah. what's most important in a sense. So Winnicott would often start his sessions with child patients with a squiggle on a piece of paper and then hand the pen over to the child to kind of draw the next line. And then they would co-construct this kind of squiggly drawing and that would form the, the kind of centerpiece of the start of the session in a sense. And I think social dreaming is a bit like that. You start the squiggle which is either, you know, uh, me setting the scene. And, and part of setting the scene is also the way that either the room is kind of constructed and that you, you kind of shift chairs around into a snowflake, a snowflake type pattern so that no one is quite facing each other square on. You have this kind of spiral, uh, snowflake. Although I'm, I'm a little bit more kind of haphazard than that generally, but as long as nobody is kind of facing each other. So it disrupts that that usual way of relating to whatever the other person is saying in that sense. And you, <laughs> I'm reminded, I don't know why, I used to, for a while there, I used to make sure that everybody took their shoes off and sometimes invited people to wear each other's shoes to really kind of displace them from, <laughs> you know, until I realised that the disgust that someone had about putting someone else's shoes on. But, um, less and yes, less than anything. <laughs> but it's a bit like... Um, you know, you have this spine of rules, which is the kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm in a national advisory board for a, a psychedelic association. And it reminds me of the importance of set and setting in psychedelic work in that sense of, you know, making sure you're, you're entering into it in the right spirit, which in social dreaming is, oh, we're here to play. We're here to, dream we're here to be that infant in infant observation we're here to be that casual tourist that just kind of sauntering around this kind of space and then what unfolds has to be emergent in that sense i'm not there to to shape that so it's a bit like jazz music in that sense it has this kind of yeah um but you know jazz has this subtle underlying spine about it and then it appears haphazard but it relies upon this sense of of play in that sense so just thinking then in terms of even for an individual listening to this what would you what would you kind of not in i'm not trying to say encourage or direct people towards but even this this curiosity towards dreams like what what would you say would be a a kind of a slight instruction as to what people could do with some of what you're saying here because i, I think you're sharing some really I don't know. It makes me feel something at the at there's a there's a there's a communication or there's an exchange at a almost like a subconscious level that we're that is really real or like that's 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 deeply connecting. Like I'm stumbling for a question here, I guess. But do you, like, what 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 could people? How could people integrate with this, even if not in a in a in a setting that we're talking about? Well, I, I like the phrase "opening the hand of thought" because I, I think we certainly in the West, and one of the things that really drew me to Emma Gilchrist's work is this notion that the kind of attention we pay to the world changes what we experience in that sense. So if we, if we rule out dreaming as just dreaming, 
meaningless kind of, um, you know, almost, you know, if we lose, if we lose the spirit of dreaming that actually it, it can inform us, it can be some kind of parable. It can, you know, that, that dreams actually form the foundation of our thinking. They are, pro you know, one way, one way that I often describe social dreaming is as proto thinking because thinking is much more acceptable than the word dreaming in our culture in a sense. So, I mean, I've, I've turned up at, um, you know, different organizational kind of consultancy pieces and I've turned up and the, they'll have prepared for me and they'll have a screen behind saying Dan Lawrence, social dreaming. And I walk in and they say, oh, here's Dan, you know, and he's going to do some social dreaming with us. And you almost kind of see that the hands kind of fold. Everybody, what do you mean social dreaming? You know, so, yeah, so it's yeah, important yeah. That, that we understand that dreaming, you know, many of the same areas of our brain that recall information, that are involved in memory, that are involved in thinking, uh, light up when we're dreaming in that sense at night, for instance, in kind of MRI studies. And, you know, we, we have this tendency because of our Western tendency to pay a, a particular kind of attention to the world, which is only getting more and more concrete in the way that we are consuming data and information and social media and you know, these kind of echo chambers yeah. that exist. That this notion of, of dreaming is rather marginalized. And yet, um, if we really start to pay attention to it, and it, and it can be... You know, Arnie Mindell has a has a phrase of flirts. I, I love that idea, to, partly because I love flirting, but I love uh, this idea that the world kind of, this dreaming layer of things kind of flirts with us all the time. If we just, you know, we just have to catch it as it's happening. If we just, oh, what, what was that just happened? And just rather than ask what was that, we can ask why, why was that? What, what did that, what was that sense of that? that? So, you know, I think I said to you the other day, you know, sometimes in, in psychotherapy work, you, you'll be working on something that you can't quite put into words or you can't quite grasp with the, um, cognitive kind of conceptual mind. And so you really do need to lean into the more dreaming layer of things. So when someone starts talking and, you know, a, a siren kind of goes off outside the, the window, I mean, you could, you could just put that down to pure coincidence or you can, just lean with a raised eyebrow and a kind of curious notion into the synchronicity that when, when, you know, this came up and was reaching thought, there was an alarm kind of going off, you know, and you, so just incorporating those kind of flirts into even in mundane day-to-day -day conversations in that sense. And of course that extends to body states and, you know, you, anything that, that is kind of non-ordinary in that sense. That is, we have this consensus level of reality that we need to, to have two feet on the ground and to experience ourselves as, as, a, as a person, as Dan or as Mark, and, and have you know, the kind of relationships that we have. But then we have this kind of non-consensus kind of layer of reality that, you know, one of the beauty of social dreaming is it points directly at that because you might have someone over there have a dream and then there's a gasp the other side of the room and it relates to something that's going on maybe in their life or last night or a question that they're, they've been really vexed by in that sense. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, this space between us is alive. It's not just me and then there's you. There's this field that we kind of inhabit in that sense.
and um, I, I think as well sometimes they they can they can be quite pointed as well. Like even our own personal dreams. Like I had the I had the very visceral uh, experience of of telling poor old Eckhart Tolle to fuck off in a dream this week. <laughs> How did he take it? <laughs> he was pretty chill, as would be expected. Um, and uh, but it, it's it's been kind of coming up. I, I've been a little bit laissez-faire with some of my mind, like specific mindfulness practices. If, if you know what I mean, that I, I've been gnawing at me a little bit. If you get me, uh, so sometimes I do feel like it comes. It can be quite personal too, right? Like, or, or or maybe I've just read something into that 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 wasn't there, but it felt like that that was that was coming from it. So, but I do think like there's this: the more we cut ourselves off from potential sources um, of experience as not or as uh, having utility and not having utility, it, it creates this very lopsided or like lopsided view of the world i think in the sense of like just to cut something off and say not just because it's not in uh not completely congruent in the rest of this reality that you say that of course we need but it's quite convenient to just kind of kind of cut a large swathe of our experience off yeah. to not really and we're encouraged because dreams you know dreams can threaten us right they can threaten the states quo in that sense and uh, we're often we're often encouraged to. I mean, lots of the, you know, in my field in terms of psychology and psychotherapy, I don't think it's any accident that we've gravitated towards generally in terms of what's commissioned in the NHS and stuff like that towards models that that leave out dreaming in a sense, and and then you get these big, say, film production companies. I mean, you know, again, it's no accident potentially that DreamWorks is called DreamWorks in a sense, you know, so you, you have these big kind of media companies that are doing our dreaming for us. So we don't have to do it for ourselves anymore in a sense. And, um, right. You know, it's, it's a bit like when I go to the cinema, as, as much as 4D films are fabulous, I, it's almost like it's too much imagination. I would rather rely on my own in that sense. You know, but I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and that's increasingly, you know, with virtual reality and stuff, what is, what is taking the place of our own kind of alive dreaming? We just consume these prepackaged dreams, which I think is a, a, a pretty dangerous thing at a collective level over time. Yeah, because even uh, I think with our nonstop access to entertainment, essentially, it does, like, like I think for a human, whether it's in terms of our own natural development, um, I think we always kind of have this idea that we must be doing something, but I often think that we just need the space to grow naturally, like almost to have white space uh, in our in our in our minds, in our experience, or even periods in our day where we don't have to do something and just to see what emerges. But with the prevalence of technology as well now, we're we're closing the door on that ourselves, uh, whether you want to say voluntarily or by manipulation or whatever. But it, it the, those spaces or those pockets just to see what it, what emerges. Um, I don't know. I think in tandem with the dreams being a little bit vilified in terms of the how how much how much weight they carry in terms of uh, waking life, sleeping life, whatever way you want to characterize it. I I think that can be quite unfortunate in the sense of our our experience, our senses, and our imagination. Uh, absolutely, and of course, you know, from a 
you know, part of Jung's genius from a Jungian perspective, these, these things that, uh, this wisdom, for want of a better word, that seeks expression in our conscious lives will have its say. And if we don't pay attention to dreams, that's when we suffer some kind of pathology in that, in that sense. And um, that's why our dreams are often, a, from a Jungian perspective, they're compensatory. They offer an alternative view to what our conscious attitude is towards something. So we might have some kind of rather strange dream that, that is really, it's not that the dream is telling us what to do, it's offering a kind of balancing act. And then we hold our conscious attitude and this unconscious dreamlike version. And if we can hold the opposites together enough, then a third kind of symbol will unite the two. We can move forward in that sense. So they really, you know, from a Jungian perspective, that it's alive and it offers us, you know, something that is long predates our, our capacity. You know, our, our brains have evolved over many years to, to be able to think in fabulously kind of abstract conceptual ways, but we do well to also pay attention to older kind of wisdom in that sense within us yeah. you know, and around us. Is there inherent is there an inherent sense of there's a point to this existence? You know, almost like the symmetry of, you know, conscious thoughts, uh, uh, dreams could be compensa- uh, compensatory for what the conscious thought is missing. Then third point, like it seems like there's almost a point to it all. Like you know, I, I've got my own personal views, and 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 not even saying I don't have a neat bow tied around my concept of God. Um, and I don't even know how that relates then to the purpose of an individual human's uh, experience. But is there like a, a sense even in, in some of uh, the work of even Jung that you're referring to there that without naming what the point of it all is, that there is a symmetry to all of this or that there is <laughs> some like, a, do, do you, I'm, I'm not asking, like, I'm just even asking well, for your own personal reflections, <laughs> yeah. not to speak on, speak on the universe's behalf here. Like, <laughs> I, um, I mean, I, I, joking aside, I think this is where I tend to fall silent in a sense. And I, yeah. I've, I've long been influenced by monastic figures over time because I think there's something about the archetype of the monk that isn't about arriving at a final kind of destination or a final kind of answer to that question. But I don't, I know that you're not asking for that anyway, but yeah. It's that movement to always go beyond what is, what is known at the moment in a sense. And, you know, my favorite Zen phrase is not knowing is most intimate, which I, I think is just the most beautiful way of describing where you might get to over a lifetime of whether it be Zen practice or mat surfing or mindfulness or, you know, whatever your, yeah. whatever your particular bend is in that sense. I think this, the arrival point is a, a genuine not knowing in that sense, because then you're most intimately in in that sense of something that is emergent and, and alive. So I've always been drawn to apophatic kind of notions of you know. the the thing I'm most drawn, or the the sentiment that I'm most drawn to, where it was by the German mystic uh, Meister Eckhart, where he says uh, his concept of Grund is like, uh, which means essentially like ground or earth like um is beyond the concept of the holy trinity like he was almost called a heretic back in the day for it um 
uh, or he was a heretic back in the day for us. Um, but it is the concept that you're almost in the same even way that you captured that with the not knowing is most intimate. It's, it's almost like that you're in it. Like, I, I don't know, there's something like you're in the experience or that, so you're like, even with God, uh, um, with Meister Eckhart, it's like that you, you don't hold something up as it, you're actually, you're with it or like you're beyond the concept of it. You are it, and, but then you no longer know yes. it. It's something, it's something it's like this. Yes, so yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you clearly not very well with the way I'm fumbling around with it. <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm, I'm very drawn to um, uh, what you might call panentheism, that, that idea that um, everything is in God rather than God is in everything in that sense. You know, so again, it's, I'm interested in field like theories because I think that most explicates my experience of being alive, of having a mind and you know when I took a three or four year old sat on the edge of, of his bed he didn't have anything like this language so he was probably much closer to the truth than I am now the, the yes desire, yes right? yes, I, yes, yes. design my life so that I'm trying to get back to this this three-year-old that knows nothing and um, sadly I mean maybe I will get there I don't know but sadly I, I, I doubt I will um, but that that's always been a key question in a sense and I found that dreaming you know, is, is a, because we do have a phenomenal mind in that sense. So we do have this thinking apparatus and it is really important. And from a psychoanalytic perspective, it's important to bring the thoughts in search of a thinker into existence or the dreams in search of a dreamer. But dreams are just a way of kind of putting some of that down, but still kind of being curious about what's emerging in here, out there, in this space between us, in a sense. And it's, without this irritable desire to, you know, your dreaming work isn't about good interpretation. It's about good dream conversation, really. The, the sense of never or never or being comfortable with the continuous going beyond or never arriving. I find this, that's where more towards the way I'm orientating at this point um, but there was definitely a very in, a very strong initial like no 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 this <laughs> I I've put too much effort into this <laughs> you're telling me that the answer is that it's just going to continuously be there's something really beautiful about the getting comfortable with something continuously almost being out of reach does does that resonate yeah with you? I, I think I think I think there's been a deep intuition in me for many years but it but it's been a life's work too, and I'm nowhere near that yet, in a sense. I mean, to talk about dreamlike experiences, I, I mentioned to you before when we uh, first met, I mean, I, I fell really ill in Malaysia recently. We, we lived as a family in Malaysia for three years, and I um, had a kind of catastrophic clotting event, uh, which included kind of clots around my body, but also a, a, a stroke in that sense. And... I, I was very grateful for having lived many years close to this question because my first reaction lying in an ICU bed in Kuala Lumpur bereft of my wife or children because it was at the height of COVID over there and no visitors, I had no phone with me or anything like that. My first response was, ah, what is this dream? You know, in the sense, what is, what is this? And I had many hours on my own to, to sit with that and also a mind that, 
wasn't quite functioning properly. Certainly, the the the, the part of me that could think clearly or, or recall things clearly, and so. <laughs> in a funny kind of way, you know, I, I don't, I don't mean this in a glib way, but if I could have designed or created a dreamlike experience that would potentially bring me closer in the moment to that, it was that really. As much as I suffered too, and I had my moments of panic, believe me, but um, you know, it, it, it also served as a, a kind of cutting through motion closer to that question again. So I'm, and that that's tended to be, you know. Tended to be the the story of my life. Really, I have these kind of dreamlike events that just remind me that, um, you know, that's that's what I'm responding to. So I, I was very lucky to do a, a deathbed meditation many many years ago of a Jungian analyst actually, um, which I went into in a rather kind of, I don't know, late twenties. I think I was kind of glib way really. Oh, this is going to be fun. You know, God, we're going to kind of pretend that we're dying. That's, what adventure, you know, and um, it was a three-day event in complete darkness and using kind of Tibetan Buddhist uh, meditations. And it was the most vi- viscerally kind of exhausting and terrifying experience of my life up until Malaysia, probably. Um, in, in that, you know, I it stayed with me. And that question of actually, what is it like to die? What is it like to be asking yourself the question, what is a good life on, on your deathbed? And there is no hiding place then. So what is the question that I am responding to in my life? If there is, if there is a God or no God or, or whatever, however you want to describe it, what is he or she asking me? And what is my answer? And yeah. Wow, that's um, that's a huge. Uh, that question sounds so mm-hmm. powerful. Like, what what is if there is a God? What is God asking me? Um, in terms of when you're when you're in ICU, so you were fully still holding. Like you're in this. I, I'm assuming like a, a very traumatic experience as well, right? Like you know, just in in terms of the intensity yeah. of it. Um, but you're still, this is what I couldn't, like, you're still holding on to a sense of like, what is this dream? Like there's still, even in an extreme circumstance, there's still this kind of curiosity or this investigation kind of playing. What what else was I to do in my time? (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was hooked up to, um, three lines of clock busters. They couldn't operate because of where some of the clots were, I, I would have. Uh, I had a, a major heart attack and um, I, uh, you know, uh, my consciousness was slightly displaced at times because of the, both the medication, but also the, the enormous stress upon my body. And yeah. I spent my life kind of paying attention to the dreaming layer of things. And here I was with nothing else to do. And, you know, you've got to be careful what you ask for, right? You know, I, I kind of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I have to say, I have to say, Mark, it, it relies upon, um, and I really do have to say this, you know, I, I'm, I'm able to, to do this shamanic type work and this shape-shifting like existence in my professional life because 
I'm married to a, a, an Irish woman who's very grounded, very much two feet on the floor in that sense. And as much as right. I was apart from her in that in that hospital room, I very much felt her presence close to me too. Oh, that's yeah. uh, oh, that's so beautiful, man. And that, and like even just in the sense of what you're kind of touching on in terms of the connection between people beyond the words, beyond yeah. these acts, like that, that's, that's really, really beautiful, man. Just in terms of what you've, you've touched on the word alive, you've mentioned the word alive, aliveness a couple of times. Could you give me a sense even of just your, because you've been kind of given a sense of your journey with the ideas of where do thoughts come from, dreams, even dreams, this dreamlike state, even the investigation or observation of that in, 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 uh, in quite extreme circumstances as well, and still that holds this sense of a aliveness. How have you? A very open-ended <laughs> question, like so, take it wherever way you want. But could you describe your kind of relationship with this as a as a key component of of your life in in terms of what you're experiencing well i'm kind of blessed in that way that i um my work holds that focus in a sense so <clears throat> i i do some social dreaming work which is you know i'm, I'm modeling that that kind of connection to dreaming in, in a sense inviting people into that state of reverie that's incredibly enjoyable for me i mean i, I feel really alive when i'm doing that kind of work um, I see people privately in terms of kind of Jungian work, and um, and then I'm, I'm sat here in a, a consultancy in London, and we work with young people between the ages of roughly kind of 16 to 28 uh, who are on the cusp of stepping into their adult life. And you know, our particular focus here is in a Jungian sense on individuation, what it means to almost become alive to yourself, and of course that includes. You know the different parts of you, the different kind of actors within you, the the dreaming layer of things, the, this uh, ego, this kind of identity that you're constructing, that you're building at the moment, your relationship to your family, how that's changing. Um, and so I, I'm surrounded by life in various stages and in various kind of settings in that sense. And uh, I have two dogs, I have three children, so I'm, I'm surrounded by. I, I've always been fascinated by the infinite expression of life through different people, through animals, through inanimate objects, what it means to kind of hold this mug and the, you know, to one part of me, it's, it's just a mug to another part of me. It has a story, it, you know, who knows how alive this mug is in that sense. So I guess it infuses, you know, so much of my life and, you know, mat surfing I mentioned earlier, which is just the most magical thing. I mean, I'd invite anybody watching this to quickly type into YouTube, uh, Andrew Buck, B-U-C-K, mat surfing, and just see in a visual kind of way what I'm, what I'm trying to kind of explicate in, in clumsy words here, this, this flow kind of state of aliveness and alignment between the energy outside and inside in this bag of air and the person lying up on top of it and just this sense of aliveness at the moment. It's just a, you know, and of course I'm very, I'm very grateful to be alive given what I, I went through kind of recently, albeit I, I, I have certain health kind of issues that come from that. But again, 
almost the dreamlike aspect to that. What are they? How are they shifting the way that I live, and, and what is there to be discovered in this new way of living? In that sense, so. I've got this impression, this very strong impression from you both times I talked to you that you genuinely like I, I so I'm I know just from your your the kind of chronological order of your life at times and you know you're saying you've been um exploring Zen for twenty five years. So I I kind of see you as someone who is engaging with this total aliveness but are kind of you're in the river with it and um, whereas i think my investigations at, at a, a more of a premature stage perhaps are a little bit more like i get what like i get washed away as opposed to being the river if you don't like i'm kind of in that i'm in a bit of a like wow stage like if because same as you sometimes i can be absolutely fascinated by holding something so simple but I still haven't kind of, I don't know, I like, I, I still find it like there's a push and pull to it, if you know what I mean. Like there's not a, a like it's it's too, at the moment it's still too, like it's almost at moments at an over aliveness with it. If you get me that it's almost hard to hold that. Like, whereas I feel you, you really... And I know, look, I, I'm not saying this is always your state. I'm glad you said that, because it isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, you know, it is interesting. One thing I do think, um, as much as people think that we try to, we try to avoid pain and sadness and we distract ourselves from feeling these things, it's my experience in the last number of years that it also takes a special kind of resonance or... Not, a, not something special, but there's also things to let go of to truly feel joy and awe and to feel comfortable in that joy and awe. And I don't think we pay as much attention to just how uncomfortable we feel in that as well if we're not attuned to that uh, to that. Absolutely. Experience. I mean, I mentioned uh, psychedelics earlier. And I, you know, just to be clear, I'm, I'm involved in that and I, I do some psychedelic integration work for people that have in the past taken psychedelics and are struggling to integrate the experience. But as you're probably aware, there's a huge bubble of excitement and interest all of a sudden in psychedelics at the moment. And I'm yeah. kind of sit on the fence with that. I have a kind of raised eyebrow to, to some of the kind of inflationary kind of aspects of that, because it's, it's, you know, I think there is a role for psychedelics going forwards in mental health, but it's not going to solve everything. Of course, that's a lovely dream and fantasy, but it's, it's, some reality to it but you know i connect that thirst and that sudden excitement with that around the, the fact that people are constrained people are we are living in a society where you know you think about social media there's a gaze upon everything that you do and certainly these young people you know they they live their lives in the gaze of others which really is quite tightening constraining so psychedelics offer this kind of split off experience over there that you can have this experience of extreme mobility and freedom and, and hopefully integrate something of that back into your life. Um, I mean, my first career was on the stock market, was on the uh, futures market and the life floor, uh, which is incredibly noisy, colourful, um, aggressive, you know, environment in that sense. It's an absolute cacophony of uh, aliveness in that sense. So, you know, I've, I've gravitated, you know, I'm 
getting older now. So I, I, I tend to spend more time and appreciate more silence. But that is on the bedrock of being in a, in a flow of a very different, very version of aliveness in that sense. And I think, you know, from a Jungian perspective, again, if I do have moments of, of real genuine being in a flow, it relies upon the fact that I allow myself to not be in the flow too. So, you know, there's there's yeah. not much of Netflix that I haven't seen really. I, I'm voracious. <laughs> up all night watching kind of numerous Netflix series. And, you know, if I play squash, I'm, I'm vicious. You know, I, I kind of, you know, love the, the screamy, <laughs> shouty aspect of that, you know, because the, the benefit of doing Jungian work from one perspective is that you enlarge the, the boundaries around which you can move. So, you know, we're here talking about this, this stuff from a, a more kind of spiritual, peaceful aspect, but we yeah. must not ignore, yeah. you know, the, the more egoic version. Oh, of that too, uh, you know, yeah, a, a, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's very encouraging <laughs> to hear that we probably share some similarities <laughs> in terms of, I'm picturing a, a tennis match with my brother when I was younger and my racket somehow ending up on his side of the court. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, like I, I, but I really do love that image. That there's an image. I think um, I forget what the exact quote from Jung was, but it was on. There was an image of a tree uh, beside it, and it's like the top of the the tree is dependent on how the deep yeah. the roots go, and kind of expanding the experience in both directions um so i can feel absolute joy and so i can feel absolute sorrow they're kind of predicated on each other because they do exist in relation to one yeah. another um which which i think is a is a really important and that's as that's well. where dreams are really um, useful because they you know they offer us compensations if because we're not we're not very good or, or certainly i'm not very good at noticing when i'm leaning kind of too far one way i'm fairly stubborn so my curiosity in dreams is, is very useful because they offer that compensatory narrative. It's like, ah, oh, okay, I need to hold these two things now and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Dan, look, you've, you've talked about so many interesting things in terms of just the, the idea of reconnecting us with almost different ways of being, reconnect, like reconnecting each other on a deeper level, connecting with dreams, almost experiencing other ways to communicate almost just even the way of experiencing or absorbing other people's experiences like whether it's in the zen hall or when it's just still feeling your wife's presence um in 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 the icu bed like this sense of i don't know this aliveness like whether it's through jung's work through it's uh through the surfing through um just the the investigation into i don't know just aliveness in every sense like in like something is happening even when you're holding a cup in your hand and there's something there's something to be curious about uh just given everything we've we've talked about and then also you've mentioned aliveness in terms of family and two dogs and nature given everything we've kind of talked about like what would you say for yourself is is a is a good life for you i think I mean, you, you, you used the metaphor earlier of being in the river in that sense. And I think there's, there's something about being in the river and noticing that you're in the river in that sense. And for me, that, that has always been about responding to that deep intuition when I was very young with much more kind of curly hair than I have now and sat on the edge of my bed and 
knowing that I'm responding in the best possible way that I can, which of course, you know, to use another Winnicott phrase just has to be good enough. And to, to be able to, at the end of my life, look back and sigh and think, ah, oh, yeah, I, I responded to that. Good enough. That's, that's it really. Yeah. In all its glory, in the pain, in the joy, in the love, in the loss. Yeah, I think there's there's something about there's something about that answer in terms then of uh, and I, I use the reality the word reality very loosely, but just uh, almost of almost of not resisting the experience yeah. of life. That it kind of makes me feel that when you say that it, across all it, across all experience across all experiences or 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 different, the different scenarios that you may find yourself in or the different relationships that you may find yourself in. Uh, that, that sounds like a, I don't know, there's a contentedness to it. And, and even that idea before where you said you're, you're not looking for a final fixed point. It's this constant engagement with life and this movement with life and this not this like rigid response to life. And there's a uh, delicious paradox because I have to be restless in order to... to follow that contentment in a sense. And, um, you know, that intuition is that there is something greater. There is something, there is a wisdom deeper than this puny mind in a sense that I do well to lean into. So whether it be dreaming or Zen or, or any of the other things that we've mentioned today, they're all pathways in, in the same direction. Yeah. Look, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the, the What is a Good Life podcast. Yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure for me too. I'm going to enjoy <laughs> listening back to this one. <laughs> um, look, I, I very much look forward to, to staying in touch with you again, Dan. But once again, thank you for your time. Um, really, really appreciate it. Me too. It. Thank you. My name is Mark McCartney. I'm the host of this podcast and I'm also a coach based in Berlin. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question and I've distilled these findings, anecdotes and experiences into both corporate workshops and one-on-one -on -one coaching programs. If you're a corporate looking to book a workshop for your next event, or you're a working professional in need of finding answers to some of the bigger questions in life, please direct message me below for a free 30-minute consultation.